Hey, this is Mike Missanelli, and you're listening to the Feed the Embiid, the number one Sixers podcast in America. Yeah, 2-1 on his jersey, playing like he's number one. Best big in the league, and it's no debate. Who's from the haters? Point him to the exit. I guess every franchise needs its process. Every franchise needs its own process. Coming down the lane, yeah. Watch your head, yeah. We post a every game, yeah. Get your Kodak. Once he gets you under the basket, you better just pray. Hit you with the jab step, knock down, lock from Ben. Get out the way, and one. Let the fans know it. Yeah, homie, let the fans know it. Watch the trailer, the three is going in your eye. If you mess, you better get back. Cause if them bees, there won't be a putback. Keep all that trash out of the paint. Cause them bees will put it back in your face. He's a cold blooded killer, and he take no prisoners. Yeah, dump off from TJ. Call it the feed to him, What's going on, everybody? This is the feed to Embiid. I am your host, Austin Krell. Brock Landis with us as usual tonight. Brock, you sipping on that a, a little drink there? Is that how bad things are in the world? Uh, my, my beverage of choice here is apple juice. <laughs> you fucking liar. <laughs> I swear to God, bro. I'm not lying. I drink this before no. every night. Oh, come on, man. That's the we... best drink. I swear right. on God. On all God, right. it's apple juice. All right, all right. Um, lots to discuss tonight. We have a We have a Sixers victory to go over. Um, it was not pretty at times. And, you know, I, while, while I wasn't hoping that they would lose the game, obviously, I was certainly thinking that a loss would would only be fitting to adequately show how bad that this team is playing right now. Um, the Spurs were without three or three, three starters, or no, not three starters, but three significant pieces to their rotation. Mm-hmm. Bellinelli, Trey Lyles, um, and I believe it was someone else. I forget who. I apologize for forgetting who. Who? Forbes. Who? Bryn Forbes. Forbes, Brian yes. Forbes. Bryn Forbes, yes, that's correct. Doesn't um, bell. And, and, and LaMarcus Aldridge. And still, the Sixers could not put them away. Um, it came down to, as we all know, a last-second shot by Shake Milton, to, of course, of all people, to win the game. Uh, after a putrid first game against the Pacers on, in our, on Saturday night. Um, before we begin and dive into it, feel free to ask questions, leave comments. We'll get back and, 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 and you know, answer as many as we possibly can. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple uh, Podcasts at the feed to Embiid. Um, leave a, a five-star review. And, you know, all, all, you know all, all, of course, all the above as per usual. Um, we're happy to, you know, to interact with you guys and talk about whatever you guys are interested in um, as it pertains to the Sixers. So, Brock, um, you know, you'd think that you see a guy like DeMar DeRozan, a 27% three-point shooter, and a, a, a known, a known rebel against the, the modern-day uh, three-point barrage that is the NBA, but rather a, a, a maestro in the mid-range, right? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it make sense? Wouldn't it make sense to maybe deviate from the dropped coverage on the big man in the pick and roll and be play up a little tighter and sort of take away that open space in the middle of the lane for, for him to, or for a guy in the mid range, like the mid range to rise up for jumpers from 10 to 15 feet out and maybe take away floaters as well. Maybe just for once deviate from that mid range game plan that you seem to, to live and die by. Uh, yeah, for 29 other teams, that makes sense. <laughs> Philadelphia, a team that surrendered the 10th most pick-and-roll ball handler points per game in the NBA since 2015, it wouldn't make sense. Um, so here's the thing, Austin. We talked last week about the Indiana game, and, and even prior to that, what the pick-and-roll coverage may look like defensively, going over screens, hedges, things like that. And I think Brett – uh, credit to him, did adjust later in the game. It, it took a couple of quarters for Brett to finally realize that maybe dropping back every single time a team puts him in the pick and roll isn't the best idea. But, um, Austin, you tweeted after you watched the San Antonio game a day prior to this game that your only analysis was that DeMar DeRozan was going to feast in the pick and roll. And 
That's exactly what happened throughout the first two or three quarters. It seemed like every time San Antonio got in this pick and roll, because of the drop coverage, they were able to generate really high percentage looks and capitalize on those looks. It's mid-range shots. It's runners or floaters from either the left or right elbow. And unfortunately, Philadelphia defensively struggles to respond just because of the scheme. And, and to clarify, this season they have surrendered the fourth most points per game to opposing pick-and-roll ball handlers and the second-highest frequency. Last year, the seventh most points per game to opposing pick-and-roll ball handlers. 2017, the eighth most. 2016, the eighth most. And 2015, the third most. So you could argue that this is a personnel problem. Throughout the years, Brett has had to deal with a lot of players that maybe not be starting caliber. But regardless, this is a trend that's been consistent for at least five consecutive seasons now. And I just don't foresee how Philadelphia can prevent players like DeMar DeRozan from having these games. Yeah. And it's, you know, um, it's certainly a, you know, it's, it's, it's frustrating for the fans. And I understand that it, it, it would frustrate the hell out of me too. If I, you know, were emotionally connected to the team anymore, but I'm not. I, 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 oh, is that a, is that a, is that new? Is that something new or no? That subsided in me this year. I was like, you know what? I, I, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, and now, now I just cover them. I, I can't, I can't do it anymore. Um, but you know, I, I, I just think how many times are you going to let, how many times are you going to let a guy get to the, literally the exact same spot on the basketball court and beat you with the exact same shot, not just in one game, mind you, but repeatedly in game upon game compounded season upon season. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, I don't even think it's an exaggeration to say that this team could have over 20 more wins over the last three seasons just if they implement a different defensive policy, a different defensive game plan, step up on the big and 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 you know and, and I get they want I get that they want to take away the three point shot and the and the play at the rim, but clearly, clearly, the players on the court, if they're so if if, if they if their instincts tell them to back off. The, the the guy you know attack the guy in the, in the mid range, then clearly they don't trust in their teammates to back them up and help defense. And I don't I don't mean like I don't I don't mean like you know like of course they don't do that because Brett tells them not to do that. As a basketball player, your instinct is to stop the ball. That's a, that's a fundamental principle of the game that you learn at a remarkably young age. Like I'm talking um, uh, sixth grade basketball. Yeah, you 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 learn the first play on the court. Stop the basketball. That's the first priority. Stop the basketball. They don't do that. They they say I'm going to back you off and I'm going to give you space. Get get to the rim, and and, and or I'm, I'm going to take away the rim from you. Their first instinct to say no. You know what? This isn't right. I know this is the, these are our principles. This isn't right. I got to step up and contest this look, and trust that my teammate will be there to back me up and rotate over if there's a play there. And I got news for you. I've seen Joel Embiid on countless occasions recover in with one quick pivot and block a shot at the rim after getting beat to the basket. So I know, I know that Joel Embiid can step out and defend a guy in the mid-range, and then if, if that guy makes a pass or makes a read and, and feeds a guy down level and there's no one to help, Joel can cover there and put pressure on that player at the rim and at least – psychologically alter that player's attempt at the rim. If not actually blocking it or deflecting it, he can do that. This drop coverage does not work. It's shown year after year. It does not work. And what's going to happen is, and I, as stupid as this might sound, I respect Brett Brown for this. I think a little more than I like call him the village idiot for it. He's going to go down with the ship of his principles. And I respect that. I don't know why I respect <laughs> that. I don't know why I respect that, but he's stubborn and he's true to himself and he's going to, he's going to ride it out. And for that, I, you know, I, I, I as stupid as it is, I have to applaud it. I, I, I don't know why I, I, I think it's, I think, you know, it's something that I can respect. 
as stupid as it is, and as much as I disagree with the philosophy, he remains with it and he sticks with it. And it's insanity, but I, you know, I, I guess there's something to be said for a guy who is so prideful in his in his, in his beliefs and is so willing to, st- to to go down with what he believes in. I kind of respect it. As weird as that yeah, sounds. Well- it's cliche, but there is a saying that insanity is doing the same thing yeah. over and over again and expecting a different result. So I presented the year-to-year statistics, and here's the problem. I don't think that Ben Simmons' defense has looked good in the bubble by any means. Uh, but I also think he's getting scapegoated, and the reason I think he's getting scapegoated is because of this drop coverage. If you have your center on the floor or your help defense, which it may be a power forward, playing five feet behind the screener and Ben Simmons has to go over every single screen because the defensive philosophy is not go under or go through or hedge it. It's always go over. Your guard is on an Island and Austin, we talk about this week in and week out. If there's two off ball screens, if there's one screen, regardless, the guard is left on an Island when they're left on an Island, they have to play on the hip of or behind If you're playing defensively on the hip of or behind, players are going to generate their own shot. When you have a player like DeMar DeRozan that's so skilled in the mid-range, getting to the elbow is what San Antonio wants him to do. If they can get him there and keep Ben Simmons or Matisse Thibel or whoever is defensively assigned to him behind him, that's fine because he's going to settle into where he's comfortable and torch Philadelphia for the entire game. Austin, let me propose this question to you, though. Okay. So I gave you the year-to-year defensive statistics. Ben Simmons, of course, I think getting scapegoated Philadelphia, bottom 10 in allowing opposing pick-and-roll ball handling points per game. Offensively, let me read you their numbers in the same span of time. This season, Philadelphia as a team is tied for the second-fewest pick-and-roll points altogether, the second-fewest possessions, and the second-lowest frequency, only ahead of the Houston Rockets, who, as you know, isolate almost every single possession, so they don't need to run that PNR as often. By the way, by the way, gotta give credit to the Rockets. They come out and they absolutely they, they they go out there and they defy all logic. Like, I mean, I I wrote a piece for them for Vince Quinn's site, The Spark, and I was like, I respect it. I, there's just no way this can work. They come out and they beat the Bucks. They beat yeah. the, they, they beat the Mavericks, uh-huh. and. You know they're they're well they're down nine to the Blazers of course Portland, right now, right now but yeah. but but and by the way I put big money I put big money on that game I, I said to over on, on that on that Houston Portland spread and that Houston well, Portland yeah, if, total if you watch the Dallas and, and Houston game yeah. I, I don't see why you wouldn't take yeah. the over on everything when Houston plays yeah um but yeah uh, you you were saying go ahead so yeah I'll continue in 2018 <laughs> oh. the fewest pick and roll ball handler points in the NBA 2017 the fewest pick-and-roll ball handler points in the NBA and the lowest frequency. 2016, the fewest pick-and-roll ball handler points in the second lowest frequency. And in 2016, the third fewest pick-and-roll ball handler points. So, Alston, you see that defensively they struggle to defend the pick-and-roll. And on offense, they don't generate anything with the pick-and-roll. So can we completely blame this on Brett Brown? Or is this a personnel problem? Is this something in the coach's room that we don't know about? Or at this point, after the previous five years of seeing these year-to-year statistics and everything with our eyes, is this something that you can completely blame on Brett Brown? No, I think I don't think you can. Okay. Um, and so that and so here's why: even when Ben tries to run pick and rolls and he tries to go th- like he he tries to go through guys, he's picking up two fouls early on in offensive fouls, or he's getting stripped on the pick and roll or he's throwing a bad pass to a cutter. It's getting get, get, turning the ball over. Even when he tries, he still isn't always effective in meeting his end goal. And I think that's a, you know, and I think, you know, that's what people, people say like, he's got to shoot the ball. So they can run more pick and rolls. That's not the end game. The end game is that the point of the pick and roll for this team is to get a guy who is not afraid to go behind a screen and rise up for a shot. Not just, not just so that way the Sixers can run pick and rolls for Ben Simmons to shoot. No, it's 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 it goes deeper than that. Um, so I think it's I think it's you know the coach could run more pick and roll. And by the way, I think we've seen a lot more from like the low post area or even like within the three point line. They'll run pick and roll for Ben to come around the screen and and he'll like finish a layup 
and it, it's like it's like you know it's closer to the basket, so it doesn't feel like your typical pick and roll. But it's still a guy. It's still it's still Joel screening and, and diving, and then Ben going around it and finishing mm-hmm. at the rim. Um, Chris DeMeo twenty one says Brett coaches them up bad. Team still looks like a high school team. I almost disagree, and here's and well, I disagree, but here's why. Wow. Here's why. At least the high school team, the players are inspired by their coach, and they're terrified of their coach, and they and they know that if they piss their coach off, he's going to bench them, or he's going to let them hear it in the locker room at halftime, or he's going to bring a clipboard during a timeout, and they're all going to be shook by it. This team isn't like that. They're not afraid of Brett Brown. They're not. They, you know, he can he can try as hard as he wants. They clearly are not inspired by him anymore. If they were, they'd be playing a much different brand of basketball right now. In fact, um, you know, it's 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 almost you know hilarious um, what you know how much different you know their playing can, can contrast with Brown's philosophies. When I was covering them uh, a couple weeks ago, and it was like a, it was like a Sunday, I think, or a, I think it was Sunday or Monday, whatever. But Rich Hoffman asks Brett, he's like, you know, wh- where do you see this opinion of yours coming into fruition about them being like, you know, built for the playoffs? And Brett Brown goes, their defense far and away is is that reason. They're giving up forty three yeah. points in the fourth quarter to sell team, that right now to a Spurs team that is down four rotation players. Four rotation players, 40-plus points in the fourth quarter. It doesn't make sense. They are not inspired by their coach to play defense. But I will say this. I think – and Kyle Newbeck made this point last night in one of his uh, – his, his his post-game breakdowns are phenomenal. Um, but he made this point last night. I was reading it. The Sixers are probably not inspired defensively because Ben Simmons, their premier perimeter defender, is defending like dog shit right now. He is, and they see that, and he sets the tone for them defensively, and they don't feel like they have to defend. I don't think it's I don't think it's no like coincidence that he's been horrible defensively the last two games. The team has been horrible defensively. He sets the tone for how they need to zone in and be focused and attentive to detail and keep track of their man and the basketball, move well off ball, rotate over one you know one one spot. He sets the tone. And he hasn't done that the last two games, and it showed. It's carried. It's carried down the down the dominoes down the team to the rest of the roster, and as a result, they've been horrible defensively these last two games. Yeah, and I'm not really sure why. Uh, earlier in the season, when Ben had to defend Demar Derozan, he did a pretty good job in doing so. In the scrimmages, Ben looked good defensively, notably against Memphis when he was guarding the four. He kept them away from the basket, creating high percentage looks within the paint. So I'm not sure if this is a random collapse or it's because he has to fight through all these screens the entire duration of the game. But it is a little disheartening, and it's tough to sell your team that's predicated on defense. You've allowed Austin, great point, over 40 points in the fourth quarter in consecutive games to teams that were shorthanded. So defensively, I think Philadelphia needs to, to, to fix things a little bit, and I, I think that's probably the easiest of fixes for them. It's better than something offensively or something that was implemented recently. But if I'm being honest, Austin, I don't know if I'm in the minority here, but I don't love this Ben Simmons experiment at the four. I I really don't. Now, I think Ben Simmons is arguably, uh, if he's not the best, one of the best players in transition in the league. So off of a live rebound, he needs the basketball. He needs to be initiating offense. A lot of what I've seen is Ben Simmons getting a live rebound and passing it to somebody that's supposed to initiate offense. And then he's relegated to his role as the four. I like Ben Simmons at the point guard because, A, on offense, you constantly have someone initiating, getting out transition, looking for the best pass, looking to create a bucket. And defensively, I think Ben might feel a little better or a little comfortable defending as a point guard than he does at the forward. Now, T.J. Warren and DeMar DeRozan – would be assignments for Ben regardless of the positions he's at. But he guarded, or or I should say defended, Jaron Jackson in the game against Memphis. Earlier in the year, his assignment was John Moran. And I think that may be something that may throw Ben Simmons off if he goes into a game where he may have recently defended Bradley Beal, but now he's got to defend Thomas Bryant. Something like that can make him less comfortable. And I think that could also be a reason why his defense may be faltering in, in this bubble. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, Hey.V1 says Brown needs to cover games, disregard the principles. If you're betting on the Sixers in any stretch, you you're, you shouldn't be betting. That, that I would not pick this team to cover any spread. I would also pick them to, to, to beat any spread. They are as unpredictable as as you come in the NBA. Um, getting back to what you were talking about, Brock, with, with, with Bennett Power Forward, I agree. And I, I also think that Brown has emphasized multiple times Hey, he's off the off the live rebound. He is our guy. Give him the ball, get out of the way, let him push. Off of a make when the defense has a chance to get back anyway, then he's over at power forward. Then he's getting deep catches and posting up at the at like the free throw line area, the elbows, and, and, and making those moves. But you know, generally I do agree. I think that he looks lost at times in the offense. And when you get lost in an offense and you're not really sure where where where, where you you know where you belong, you you start to think a little more, and then suddenly your body kind of tends to relax a little bit, and then suddenly you're getting beat backdoor. You're you're losing track of your guys, you're losing track of your principles, and you're becoming ineffective. And I think as a result, he gets disengaged by by, by this, and so I think him trying to find his new fit in this offense with with, with this group of guys has led to him ultimately becoming disengaged. And I think it, it, it's hurting the team a lot right now. Um, were things better before with Bennett power forward or with Bennett point guard? No, the team was still ridiculous and it was very hard to figure out. Um, and I still think though that they can be good with him at point guard. And here's why. How much of the, of, of, of the, of the concern and the frustration this year was about them looking like a team that genuinely didn't give a shit versus a team that was, okay, they're just not making shots. Mm-hmm. It was more often about them just looking like they didn't care and they weren't engaged and it didn't matter to them than it was about, oh, well, at least they're trying, but they're just not making shots. The, it was so much more often the the former, the effort, than the latter. Because you you, you should be fine with, you know, if they, if they can't make shots, so be it. They're not making shots. But – Hey, they're 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 grinding out defensive possessions. They're gritty. They're they're working hard for everything. They're making the opponents, you know, dread the paint and work hard for everything. That wasn't their mo this season, and that's why people were frustrated. So I think that if they can find that inner that that inner you know pride and and pick up their effort on both ends of the court, they can make Bennett point guard work. Right now, now uh-huh. now now next season, you know, you get a new coach in there, you get new personnel. Then maybe you experiment with something different, but I think this all comes back to the fact that they were so, um, you know, that that for like for glimpses of time, when Embiid was out, you could play Ben at center and it looked good and it was making sense and they had Josh running pick and rolls and they were, um, and 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 they, and they were you know doing this and that and it was like, well wait a second, maybe we all maybe we're onto something here. It turns out that no. You know, I'm not, and I'm not saying abandon the offense right now, but it has not looked good so far. In large part because Ben has naturally become disengaged because he can't figure out where he belongs, and you don't want him to get too far disengaged, where it's like, okay, now how do I get back to where I was? So you know, I, I think that they have some work to do, and I think they can make it work. But I think you know, as of now, they're kind of they're, they're kind of stuck in a rut. I also think that defensively, Ben trying to work against guys his size may not be successful at the moment because he's so used to going against guys that are 6'5 and under. He's been able to dominate almost every point guard in the league defensively. So, Austin, you make a good point. Off of a live rebound, he should be the guy in the half court. Sure, you give it to Shake Milton, but here's some of the things I'm looking at, and, and this is a, a very small sample size, so take it with a grain of salt, but Ben Simmons leads the Sixers right now He's also third in the NBA bubble in elbow touches. He has more than Joel Embiid and Al Horford. Contrary to the regular season, this was Al Horford's role and occasionally Joel Embiid's role. The reason I'm not loving this experiment is because Shake Milton can be on the floor with Ben Simmons and Simmons can still be the point guard, right? So out of the elbow and with Shake Milton as a point guard, you really haven't seen new offensive looks. It, it, It more or less looks like the same offense. There really isn't any pick and pop. Ben Simmons isn't floating to the corner and taking threes. There's no elbow screening. 
with a pop to Ben or, or, or a cut, a roll from Ben, more or less, it looks like the same offense. So I think you can still execute with Ben at the point guard and keep shake on the floor. And that's, that could be wishful thinking. That could be too late now to revert back to the old way that, that Philadelphia ran their offense. Um, but Austin, I think we feel mutually about this experiment. For sure. And Chris, the man 21 says that Ben doesn't want to play power forward. I, I don't think so either. I think right now he's frustrated. He's trying to figure it out. And it's, 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 it's manifested itself in his performances last two games. Uh, hey, dot V one um, Mavs best offense, most pick and rolls. Sure, they, they have had the most efficient offense this year. They've also been the worst fourth-quarter offense this year. They've lost a lot of games in the fourth quarter that they could have won because their offense is so bad in the fourth quarter. So mm-hmm. down the stretch of games, is it, I mean, d- d- does it really work? Does it really matter what the Mavericks do in the rest of the game if their offense ultimately does not work down the stretch of a must win of, of, in, in the crunch time, in the guts of the game? doesn't matter. Um. Brock, your thoughts on that? Well, I think Memphis is really good, and and they do have have a player that's willing to shoot anywhere. He said Mavs. He said Mavs. Who did I say? Who did I say? Uh, Who did I say? You said Memphis. I said Memphis. I meant I meant the Mavericks. It's this apple juice, man. It's got me. It's no, I'm kidding. Told you. I knew it. It is apple juice. Yeah. All all my life, this is apple juice. All my life, it's apple juice. But nonetheless. Yeah, Mavericks is good, but Mavericks are good. But I, you're right. I think they have. I, I think it was 16 losses in the final minute of a game this season, uh, because their their lineups are, are not doing well closing out. But on an unrelated note, I wanted to talk about something that I did like that Philadelphia executed because we've been pretty pessimistic thus far, and that was Joel Embiid and and his post dominance. Getting him established early, deep in the paint, is really a good way that Philadelphia can bully teams and. They didn't necessarily bully their opponent, but Joel Embiid posted up 18 times, okay? Philadelphia is 5-0, and undefeated this season in games where Embiid posted up 15 or more times. His offensive rating is 117 in those five games. For reference, the league average is around 110. So he has 18 post-ups. He goes 5 of 8 from the post over 60%. He gets to the line six times and makes five free throws there. He had four assists from the post and no turnovers. Austin, Joel Embiid got doubled a lot. San Antonio's game plan was to shade defenders and get Joel Embiid double team, try to force a turnover or a bonehead mistake. Four assists out of the post and zero turnovers in 18 post-ups is really encouraging. I like that a lot. I think Joel looks motivated. He looks energized. He looks healthy. He looks in good shape. And if he's willing to dominate like this in every game, they're going to stick around. I mean, you had Ben Simmons foul out and an ugly game from almost everybody not named Joel Embiid and Tobias Harris, and yet you still win the game by a slim margin. So I think if Joel Embiid can establish himself deep in the paint early, it's going to bode well for Philadelphia all of the time. For sure. And, you know, I, I you're right. I think – Joel has delivered on what Brown, on what Brett Brown has said about him, and a lot of it has to do with those you know those deep catches that Brett has has emphasized so often, um, you know recently is getting him deep catches in the paint so that way it's easy it's easy work for him it isn't you know too much having to think having to create having to put pressure on his shoulders it's just deep catch establish pivot turn dunk. And you know, that that's really it's worked for Joel, and it's made their offense more efficient. And you know, also give credit to Joel. Yesterday, he did some of the best work out of reading the double teams and firing passes to guys and hitting cutters and finding shooters. And their offense almost kind of made sense for a little while. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and it, it was in large part because of that. And in fact, <clears throat> the, the Joel's positioning on the final possession actually helped them get Shake Milton the ball because Al Horford made a pass fake in to Joel, a quick one, and it brought DeJounte Murray off of Shake a little bit and gave him the space. He goes right back to Shake and Shake's open, and that that was the difference in the game. He, that little pass fake brought the defender over to, 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 to double Embiid because they were so sure it was going to come to Embiid. It left Milton wide open, and that that, that, that subtlety was what changed, was, was literally the game-winning play. 
what were they down by at that time? I don't remember. What two? Could they have, two. Yes, okay. Yeah, and that's and I, I, I looked at my dad. My, my dad is getting impossible to watch games with. I mean, that man is negative about every single thing with this team. You see it all. Like he knows. He's, a, he's an impatient boomer now. It's ridiculous. He's an impatient boomer now. I, I don't get it with him. But I turned on. I was like, I guarantee you, the Rosen's hitting a shot like 15 feet with like two seconds left to win this game. I guarantee it. And then, lo and behold, DeRozan had a hammer play in the corner, and he passed it up. He had Josh yeah. Richardson behind him. He yeah, could have, he, he was done. And then he, <laughs> he chose to give it to diving Jacob Point, uh, Pirtle. It, it was, it was, it was yeah. ridiculous. They collapsed in that final one minute. There was two crucial turnovers there, defensive breakdown. But my point being, Philadelphia is down too. Everybody in that gymnasium and everybody watching probably assumed – that the one player to get you two points in that situation is Joel Embiid. And that's why Popovich tried to shade for that double team and nobody defended the inbounder. Shake Milton gets that open three. And I think that's why Shake can be so valuable because there's not many other players on Philadelphia that's both willing to and capable of hitting that shot with the game on the line. So kudos to Shake Milton there. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's really tough to enjoy this game because of how poorly Philadelphia looked for two or three quarters of it. But again, Tobias Harris continues to deliver. Austin, Tobias has been incredible in the bubble. He's He's been nothing short of awesome in the in this bubble. Say it louder for people in the back, please. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the unique thing about Tobias is that he's kind of he, – he's growing more comfortable in his role in Philadelphia's offense. And it's nice to finally see – what, what I've noticed is it seems like when he knows he has an opponent on him that should get bullied or physically is no match for him, he takes them into the paint, and, and it's pretty successful. Uh, and looking at his shot chart, he hit all but three shots in the paint, and most of them were right around the rim. So he's taking guys deep into the paint. He's making these mismatches, and he took five shots from beyond the arc and made three of them. So he's taking sh- shots that are good looks, open shots, and – He's banging them, and good for Tobias. Let me go on a little monologue here. For those of you that, yes. think, uh, yes. for those of you that think Tobias Harris isn't isn't worth the money, you might have to reevaluate your your stance because there's 11 players in the NBA right now. Pause. Pause. That, go ahead. Say it with more conviction, Brock. Don't let them think that they have any chance of being right about it. You have to say it as if they're the idiots. I've don't been say, trying. No don't, one wants to listen to me. Don't say I gotta reevaluate. You gotta reevaluate your stance. Say no, you're wrong, and here's why you're wrong. I like that. All right, I'll, I'll I'll let you do the dirty work for me then. So, Austin just told you you're wrong, and here's why you're wrong. There's 11 <laughs> players that make an annual earning between 30 and 30 million dollars. 30, 30 and 33 million dollars. My apologies. Okay, those players, Paul Millsap. Paul George, Chris Middleton, Kyrie Irving, Mike Conley, Gordon Hayward, Kemba Walker, Clay Thompson, Kawhi Leonard, Jimmy Butler, and Tobias Harris. Now, I assume most casual basketball fans would put Tobias Harris at the bottom half of that list in terms of who's most impactful or who's worth what they're earning, but it's really not the case, okay? In both this season and last, Tobias has played enough minutes to rank top five in the league. So he's probably more durable than most all players on that list. From 2015 to 2018, he missed just eight games. He played an 82-game season twice in 2016 and 2018. Seven players on that list missed at least 60 games over the same span of time. Only one missed fewer than Tobias Harris. So he's more durable than the other 10 players making what he's making. Of the 11 players on that list, He's third in scoring in the past three seasons and shot better than seven other players on that list from deep. So in terms of point production, he's among some of the best on that list. Since 2017, he's produced more isolation points than Jimmy Butler on better efficiency. So if you need an ISO bucket, you'd probably say Jimmy Butler's the guy you go to. But since 2017, Tobias has been more productive there. In the same frame of time, He scored the most post-up points of anybody on that list and shot almost 60% from the post. That's efficient as could be. For the past three years, Paul George is the only player on that list that made more catch-and-shoot threes 
than Tobias Harris. Not Chris Middleton, not Kyrie Irving, not Kemba Walker. Tobias Harris has the second most catch and shoot threes for the past three seasons made of those 11 players. Of the 11, only two have scored more points than him, Kemba Walker and Paul George. So for those of you who think Tobias Harris isn't worth what he got, you're wrong. You, you need to reevaluate your opinion there. And I say that because Tobias Harris has earned his stripes. And if you don't want to give him the proper respect, then that's okay. But you just sound like an idiot. <laughs> there we go. He did it. <laughs> um, I 1 million percent agree. And, you know, as good of a year as Jimmy Butler has had in, in, at those, you know, at those uh, cockroaches down in Miami, um, he, you know, people think that, 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 that Jimmy Butler is this unbelievable, like, God in the fourth quarter. Tobias, the numbers are so heavily in favor of Tobias Harris that, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, that, it, that it's, it's, it's actually kind of wild. And so everyone was like, I can't believe you let Butler go last year. He was this, he was that. Harris was a tremendous, tremendous, he was, a, he should have been an all-star for the Clippers last year. And he struggled so mightily in Philly because of the fact that he was new role, entirely new role. That's now the third or fourth option on the team. And he's relegated to get to, 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 you know, stretch four, stretch four, stretch four duties. That, that, that isn't him. And so, you know, I think we have to sort of take, I think people do a bad job taking the context of, of, of situations and really understanding why, but we're, we, we've seen more of, you know, Clipper Tobias in Orlando that, than, than we had previously, um, you know, th- this season. Um, King James three says Mark Jackson for coach is the answer. Um, Not so, gets so this is why you're wrong. <laughs> um, and you know, respectfully, this, the, I disagree. And there's a reason that Mark Jackson isn't coaching in the NBA anymore. Number one, the on-court stuff, the, the Warriors were ungodly better as soon as he left the team. Like as soon as he got fired, championship, literally. Like they went from a first round loss to a championship in the, in the matter of one offseason because of a coaching change. Top of that, he's reputed around the media, you know, circles around the NBA as a horrible person as a coach. That's that's not even including the the cheating on his wife with 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 with, with you know um we'll call them strippers, I guess, or, or prostitutes, whatever you want to call them. But he's made ho- he's made homophobic remarks behind closed doors. There there the, the the Warriors had a recording of him. Someone someone planted a camera in his office, I think, and, and there was like a recording of him, you know, making horrific comments behind closed doors to an employee. He also, and this is this is something I confirmed with B writers, this story by the way, he convinced the other Warrior players that Festus Azili was rooting against them because he was injured at the time. So he convinced them that he that they were that he was rooting against them. And then all the players confronted Azeli or Azeli in, in the team meeting, and he actually began to cry over it. For real? Yeah. So I Mark never knew any of that. Anything been, you just said, anything you just said is all news to me. So yeah, I, I mean I've heard this from other beat writers. Like he's he's well known to not be a good guy. Oh, okay. Um so not only do you not want him on the court because he literally <laughs> held the Warriors back, he's also just not a good dude. Um, now, uh, and I literally read that story from from like a, a, a text I have in my phone right here. Like, it's, I'm not making it up. I'm dead serious. Um, now, Chris DeMeo21 says, Shake should be used a duo with Simmons, but Simmons is point guard. Um, what do you think of the idea of – Moving maybe moving Josh to small forward. Do you think that he could like potentially make it work because he's going to be quicker than most bigger bigger forwards? Um, he you know he can he can dribble a little bit. My thing with Josh is that I don't really want him creating off the dribble because um, like he sort of just dribbles into nothing. Like his dribbles don't ever progress to play uh-huh. towards a shot or towards the basket. Yeah, that I agree with. I'm I'm a little confused, right? So I think Ben belongs at point guard, and I also think Shea can coexist on the floor with him. But you you still can't run any pick and roll because if Ben is the point guard, 
is Shake setting a screen for him and popping out. That I don't understand. And at six, <laughs> six I'm not sure if Richardson can defend well against small forwards. But he did spend some time in Miami playing at the three. So it's definitely not out of the question. Um, but I also think Philadelphia playing positionless on offense would kind of alleviate those problems. So it's not like you have a traditional point, a traditional shooting guard, and a traditional small forward. It's kind of like two wings and Ben Simmons. Uh, so I, I honestly think that at some point Philadelphia goes back to Ben at point guard. I don't know when that is, but I, I think that that's your best bet at, at having a, 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 your most optimal offense with this roster construction. For sure. Now, yesterday you know they, they got off to a pretty good start offensively um, against San Antonio, and um, you know I think I thought a lot of it was that they were they were targeting Embiid and they were actually like running the offense as, you know, in, in, as like finally Embiid's closer to the rim. He's getting, he, you know, he's, he, he had Jakob uh, Pertle, um, you know, in foul trouble really early on. It was real quick. Um, and you know, things were, were functioning at a high level. Then as soon as, you know, and then, then like they, for whatever reason, they, they went away from that. And they started like sort of not giving him his consistent touches, so he kind of got out of a rhythm that had been established previously, and that's where their offense sort of stalled. And then their defense, like and Bede looked disengaged on defense last night. I thought because he he just couldn't really get into a rhythm with like, okay, this is an automatic bucket for me right here. This is this is it, and you know he wasn't like locked in in that stretch. He was trying to figure out his spots and trying to like you know it was mentally taxing him to try to figure out where he was supposed to be on offense you know what was it was it facing up 15 feet out was it just one foot on the block other one pivoting trying to get a, a dunk boom was it you know out in the perimeter with 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 Ben or whoever else down low you have to establish him there and say we're not going to move him until you make us move him that's going to engage him more it's going to make your offense better. It's going to put him in a position where he has to learn to read the double more. He has to learn. And he says, he, you know, I got to do my job better every night. He says it in his press conferences. I got to do better. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's a group effort. Part of him doing better is reading his doubles. The more you put him in his position where he has to read doubles, the better off he's going to be, the better off team's going to be. So you got to work on establishing him in that paint until someone figures out a way to counter it effectively. And then, okay, maybe you regroup and then you try something different. But last night, they had no bigs to counter it. There was no reason to go away. And instead, they're, they're teetering back and forth between, you know, deep catches 15 feet out, deep catches 15 feet out. And it caused a domino effect of disengaging the defense because Embiid's like trying, you know, he, he he's trying to get back. He's trying to figure out this, that. And he's not defending the rim that well. He wasn't. A lot of guys were getting to the rim at will last night against the Sixers. And it was because Embiid wasn't quick enough, wasn't there on time, wasn't, you know, 100% locked in. And that goes – and that and that harkens back to the offense, offensive side of things. Um, now, <clears throat> Brock, mm-hmm. how, how did you think that Shake handled um, himself after the loss to Indiana with – with with you know his, his his press conference the next day, you know how he carried himself with the MB situation and and what and and whatnot. I think really nicely, honestly. I, I don't think that Shake has really demonstrated poor body language in regards to what's been going on in the court, and it's probably been frustrating being promised that you're the starting point guard, and yet it's tough to coexist with the four other players on the floor because for whatever reason, offensively. There's just little to no cohesion. And after a game like last where the fan base is pretty upset with him and people start saying that Shake Milton needs no playing time now and he shouldn't be the point guard, he comes out, he goes six of nine from the field, makes two of four from beyond the arc, beyond the arc hits the biggest three-point shot in the game. He assists the Rock a little bit, three assists, only one turnover. Uh, in comparison to the previous game, he got into foul trouble. He, he was turnover riddled. So I think he had a really nice game bouncing back and – Shake's the type of player that's going to play with a chip on his shoulder. I mean, he's got nothing to lose. Philadelphia's playing with house money when Shake Melton is on the floor. 
So I, I think he responded really nicely. The body language was encouraging him and Joel Embiid. Austin, you tweeted something really significant. This is what happens when you're a family. It happens on the basketball court. You said you're glad that happened because it's indicative that the team is engaged and, and they're they're trying to create this chemistry. Uh, so uh, everything was encouraging this Milton bounce back game for me. You know, I don't often I don't often hear that I tweet something significant, but when I do, it makes me smile <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Chris DeMeo, who has been a a hot contributor to our show tonight, um, says, "Why is Brett playing Neto?" It's a question that we that everyone's wondering, and yeah. I actually think it makes more sense than what people give credit for. Um, Neto provides structure and organization to an offense that desperately needs it at times. And that's why he's in there in the fourth quarter. Is he, the, is he maybe the best option what the team needs? No, I would, I would go with Alec Burks there in the, in the fourth quarter. However, at times when things are chaotic and in disarray and, and beat is not looking engaged. I think the right guy, or the, not the right guy, but the best option on your team might be how will Neto for five minutes because of the fact that he's, it's, you know, you have to look at Embiid when Neto's in the game. He knows where to be. He immediately come, becomes more engaged. He is on the block. He's setting screens. He, he looks more like himself when Neto's on the court because he understands that, you know, because Neto understands the offense, understands how to, how, how to read him, and he looks for Joel. Burks is, is is a guy who gets you eight points in three minutes. But everyone else sort of like standing there like, like well, what do we do? What what you know, Joel is disengaged. And ultimately what you were trying to do when all is said and done is put the ball in the hands of your best player. How Meadow does that? Alec Burks does not. Brock, you disagree. No, I can t- I can see you disagree. I can see it. It's just tough to watch Hollow Meadow play for over 10 minutes, honestly. Like, that's just what's most infuriating to me. I've tried to determine what Hollow Neto does, and I really can't figure that out because it's not something that shows up in the box score, and it's not necessarily something that translates on the floor. I hear, Austin, you get kind of this, not camaraderie, but almost like understanding of roles a little better when Hollow Neto's on the floor because you know he's not getting shots up. And you know he's there to kind of kickstart something. But my problem is that I don't really see him kickstart anything. And in a game where he has 11 minutes and more turnovers than assists and barely contributes offensively with any point production, I just question what the benefit of having him on the floor is when there's players like Alec Burks on the bench that could at least provide some offense in the half court more than how Oneto can. So, Earlier in the year, I I was really upset when Philadelphia let go of Trey Burke, and I was told that he was let go because he was taking shots that were more individually motivated and they didn't benefit the team. But nonetheless, you were told that meaning like a source told you that, or that's whatever that's what the that's what the census was. People, people on Twitter, people I know, the census was that Trey Burke was let go of because he was not taking. Uh, team first shots and not passing in the right situations. But nonetheless, Trey Burke's a scorer. He, he can score. He can bust the zone, whether it be 2-3 or 3-2. He can provide shooting. He worked well with Ben Simmons. And they let go of Trey Burke and keep Howell Neto. And I figured, all right, whatever. There might be a reason. And to this day, I still haven't seen that reason. I just don't know what Howell Neto does for your basketball team, especially in the fourth quarter. Right, in the fourth quarter, you shouldn't be playing them at all. I agree. But I think if the goal is to win the game, you're going to win the game with the ball in the hands of your star player. And right. I think of all the guards in the team, on all, I should say that, of all the true guards on the team, because Ben That's Simmons the is – the, the, There's only one of them, and it's Howell Neto. Right. That's the problem. Exactly right. He wouldn't be my, my number one choice at point guard. He would not be. Yeah. But of all the options, he's the only one who is going to maximize Joel Embiid's touches off the bench. So you go with him. And no, he doesn't produce much or really anything positive at all most of the time individually. But his impact shows up in a way 
that goes beyond what you see on the box score, beyond the points, beyond the assists, beyond the assist turnover ratio, beyond the plus minus. I challenge you to look at Bet Joel's numbers when Ned is on the court. You sure you want me to do that? I <laughs> yes, but I, I I bet you I bet you that his numbers are better with Neto than they are with with Alec Burks. And if I'm wrong, I'm gonna have a lot of people in my mentions tomorrow. Talking about it now. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll to, want it right now. I, I, I listen right to now. I listen to this podcast, you jabroni, and I'm telling you, you're and these numbers are literally literally wrong. But um. <clears throat> So the consensus around everywhere seems to be that Brett Brown is on his final legs with this franchise. And I know that you feel that way. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you this, and this is sort of going to be leading to our, the end of our show tonight. Do you like shotgunning beer? Do you want to increase your shotgun time at parties? Check out my boys at the King Cobra. King Cobra is a shotgunning tool that makes the perfect shotgunning hole under a second. There's also a tab puller, vent plunger, and all fits on a keychain. For more information about the King Cobra, check them out at the King Cobra Co. That's the King Cobra Co. on Instagram, and Cobra is spelled with a K. For a 10% discount on all products, enter the code TRUSTACOBRA10, all caps, all one word. Pick up yours today. Not by name, but... In terms of style, in what you would be looking for for a best fit for this head coach, the next head coach, what are you looking for? What what, what is your strategy in assessing who the best option is to be the next head coach of the team? Shit, if that was my job, I'd be working for the organization. (laughs) Um. I really love what Nick Nurse has done in Toronto and recreating that is going to be extremely rare. Um, but I do think that there is something with a youth movement and, and coaching. I see it in the NFL. I see it in baseball. I see it in the NBA. I, I'd like a coach that's not disconnected with his players in the game of basketball, a coach that kind of understands the modern brand of basketball and how to cater to his players on the team. Frankly, I'm not going to be greedy. I just want a, I want a coach that can maximize what he has, right? Austin, your boomer dad, I feel like he could coach the Sixers better than Brett Brown could. Like there's certain games where I'm like, what the hell is going on? Who Who's advising these people to do what they're doing? Because somebody could do a better job than Brett Brown. And we're, we're never really going to know if Brett got scapegoated or if this was his doing or the organization of players – but honestly, I want a coach that can maximize the talent on the floor. And how do you do that? You don't have crazy home and away splits by allowing your guys to shoot the first shot when they get the green light on the road compared to at home. You don't create this huge disparity. You run some things on the offense. I understand it's a clunky fit with Joel and B getting catches deep in the post and Ben Simmons in transition to set up in the half court and actually execute with a pick and roll. But I just want some semblance of an offense in the half court. I want to see off-ball movement. I want to see backdoor cuts. I want to see off-ball screens, some DHOs, pick and rolls, spot-ups, catch, stuff like that. In Philadelphia's offense, it's very one-dimensional. So what I look for in the next head coach is just something offensively. That's more important than the defensive end for me right now. Okay. So – I so first of all, my dad could not coach this team. <laughs> my dad couldn't coach his way out of the paperback. <laughs> you don't think? <laughs> no, he, he he couldn't. He couldn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it would it would end quicker than uh, John Beeline's tenure ended in Cleveland. <laughs> all right. Um, um. So I think for you know for for what for for to match what this team needs, I think what you need is someone to teach the game and not just teach it and into how it fits your principles, but to teach the overall game. So that way your players understand how to adjust and how to, um, 
you know, like, like, like why to adjust to a certain way in game. And they can almost feel empowered to make those adjustments themselves on the court in real time without you having to call a timeout and, and scream at them in the middle of the game to adjust in a certain way. So when you think of teachers, who do you, you know, you, you think of options and, you know, I tend to think that maybe people haven't really, you know, people assume that Ty Lue was always, you know, a product of, of LeBron, um, you know, just saying like, you know, here's the keys, go, go, go make me look good. Um, I think he's worthy of an interview. I think, um, you know, if you're following the Nick Nurse mold, which I think is a good one, because Nick Nurse won a championship with the G League mm-hmm. as the head coach. He's he's been an assistant. You know, he was an assistant before Toronto. Um, they followed similar paths, but Jerry Stackhouse would be yes. an, an interesting option. Um, Kenny Atkinson, I, I'm, I think, is on the list, but I don't really want Kenny Atkinson. Um, I think another option that people sort of don't give a lot of credit to or thought a lot of thought of is. I think Becky Hammond's badass. I think, I think she, I think, I think, I don't think she'd take any shit from, 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 from better Joel. I mean, you see videos of her and she's getting in like guy and like Patty Mills face. And it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, and and, you know, they, they, they respect her. And I think she does a really good job as an assistant coach with the Spurs. And I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that because I'm trying to, you know, you know, break, 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 uh, you know, barriers here. I truly think she's a very good candidate to be, you know, to be considered for, for a coaching job. Now the question is, do you want to go with an experienced coach or, you know, someone who would be a, a rookie head coach? And we just, you know, we, the team would just have gotten over seven years with a guy who had no prior coaching experience. So, you know, do you really want to potentially waste two to three more years of a guy trying to develop himself as a coach and lead this team. So those things to consider. I kind of thought, you know, Thibodeau would have been a, a, an interesting candidate if he hadn't gone to the Knicks. Obviously, <laughs> I see you. I see you holding back a grin. But I, I, I think Tom Thibodeau, when you know he had a functional roster, the the team actually was a damn good team. They were the best team in the East. Mm-hmm. Now he's with the Knicks now. But your thoughts on Tom Thibodeau? <laughs> my thoughts you don't want to know mine he, he traded everybody of significance on minnesota and then signed some horrible contracts in minnesota and, and ran players into the ground and now he gets a second win with new york but what i what i wanted to say about brett is that i think brett is actually a, a good teacher of the game i think he's a good developmental coach and that was his role prior with san antonio except He's not doing what it's I don't think he's done a good job developing who has to be developed. I think he likes the underdog story. He he got, he, he was the perfect coach for the process. But I don't think he's the perfect coach to deliver this team a championship. I think he's he, he's more concerned with grooming a Furkan Korkmaz, a TJ McConnell, a Robert Covington than he is a Ben Simmons or a Joel Embiid. So I think your next coach has to have the personality enough where they can butt heads with Joel Embiid or Ben Simmons, but in a constructive way. It's like, Joe, listen, you took seven threes from beyond the arc the first three quarters tonight. You're not going to touch the ball unless you're within six feet of the basket for the rest of this game. That's how we're going to win. Ben, look, I need you to get in the corner. I need you to do that. I, need, I think that Brett is, is, is more accommodating than most coaches would be, and I think that's the environment that Philadelphia has made. Um, so uh, my, my, my next ask in a coach also would be that constructive criticism is, is, is able to be given around to other players in a productive environment, of course. For sure. And, um, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people on Twitter are like, why does the media cover for Brett so much lately? lately, lately what is that? What, what is that about? And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that a lot of the media are, are young and you know they've begun cut covering the team within the last seven years. The only coach they've known is Brett Brown, mm-hmm. and they've grown with him. And you know they've, you know they, they've seen him succeed. They've seen him fail. They've seen him you know be 
you know, hung out to dry. They've seen him survive numerous different oddities with this team. But the simple fact of the matter is this. He's good for developing individual players, and those players are like humble role players, like Covington, like Sharich, like McConnell, like Furkan, even like Shake. But how many number how many first round picks have they had that he hasn't been able to develop? Right? Like like uh-huh. like, like Okafor never became anything, right? Anywhere else. So I mean I don't really blame him for that. Um, you know, uh, who else? Nerlands. Uh, Nerlands. MCW. Uh, yep, Mark Markel. None of these guys were were, were oh, great yeah. were, were, were great picks, and that's you know partially you know on on Hinky, and it's partially on Brett because Brett ultimately you know the, you can't tell me that there's not some sort of you know deliberation between the general management and and the coaching staff to get on the same page here. So I think Brett is very good at at developing a certain type of player, but ultimately he isn't good at developing. You know the the players that are going to lead you to a title, and you know I I, I like the guy. I think he's a great guy, but it, it's just so obvious that they don't believe in him anymore, and he's run out of gas, and he's he, you know his his charming accent is beginning to fall on deaf ears. For me, it's been deaf ears for two years now. I mean, he got, <laughs> he got bailed out because the way that last season ended, it was really a heartbreaker. So everyone's like, all right, whatever. We'll let this dude slide for another year. But it feels like every time people have time off from the Sixers, they just convince themselves. It could be the fandom, but they convince themselves that these overarching problems are going to disappear. So at the top of our show, we talked about one thing that's been constant for five years. And yet every time the Sixers get lit up in the pick and roll, people wonder why. And I'm glad that now it's finally starting to, to – people are, are starting to come to their senses that maybe it's not the personnel on the floor and maybe it's the coach. And sure, Brett's a great guy. He's a good personality. And he's had to deal with a lot more than most other coaches in the league in this past decade. But that shouldn't make him exempt. He should still be held accountable – for not holding people accountable. And for that reason, I'm out on Brett Brown. I've been out on Brett Brown, and I'm going to be out on Brett Brown until he's actually out, and then I can scapegoat another head coach. It's just the game I like to play. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Let's say this team won the championship. <laughs> what are you going to do like that episode of the podcast? And you're like, I don't even fucking know anymore. I'm, I give up. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, Austin, I do not know. I Honestly, I don't know. But – it's got to end at some point, right? The madness has to stop at some point. It, it that's like the final encore. Um, I, I will say this before before we head out. Um, this team really hasn't been hasn't fit well together since 2017-18. That they haven't. Like last year's team wasn't a perfect fit. This year's team is a god awful fit. The 17-18 team had Bellinelli, Ilyasova. Um, um, uh, JJ, Sharich, Covington, yeah. bunch of guys who could shoot the ball. They had space. They had pace. That team was damn good on both ends of the floor. The players knew their roles on that team. The offense was, was tremendous. They won 17 games in a row without their best player playing. I don't think you can pin it all on Brett Brown. You, you, it's so hard to mold pieces that don't fit perfectly together into a into a, a well-functioning, cohesive unit. Well, the- my counter-argument would actually be that on those teams, there's other minds on the coaching staff, and two of which are now head coaches in the NBA, Monty Williams and Lord Pierce. You got two good minds on the bench with Brett. They could have been bailing them out. That's what I mean. The, the coaching room, it's really – we talked about this the other day. It's – it's tough to get into the coaching room because you really don't know what's going on behind closed doors, and you don't really hear from assistant coaches ever. You you, you never hear an assistant interview. Yeah, for but sure. Go ahead. I had to inter- I had to interrupt you there. No, no problem. Um, Brock, what what do you got to shout out? What are you working on? That I don't know. 
Uh, that's that's going to come to me within the next couple of days. But that's that's the point of being a content creator. When it comes to me, I make it happen. There we go, my man. He's Landis Brock on Twitter. Brock Landis in real life. I am Krell TPL on Twitter. I have got a slew of articles coming as per usual. I, I did, never stops the content coming yeah. every day. Um, you can find us on Twitter again, Krell TPL, Landis Brock. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Pods, that the, the feed to Embiid, um, and you know give us a five star review. Subscribe to us on YouTube at the Painted Lines. Um, as always, he is Brock Landis, Landis Brock on Twitter, Austin Krell, Krell TPL on Twitter. Stay safe, everybody. Have a good night, and we'll be back tomorrow. Right? We go tomorrow. tomorrow. Going tomorrow. Another episode tomorrow. Um, hopefully, after a, a a much more dominant, inspired win by the Sixers, hopefully. Um, but we will see you guys tomorrow night. Take care, everybody. Have a good night. The feed to Embiid and its name are protected by U.S. copyright laws. Reproduction and distribution without my written permission is prohibited. Copyright the feed to Embiid. 2020.